0: Well, we're turning our attention to the issue of stewardship again. As you know, we've been going through um, Romans, and in January, decided to take a little bit of a break and address the issue of stewardship. Now, something about that, as soon as you say stewardship, everyone thinks, okay, here we go, we're gonna talk about money, and we will eventually. But that's number five of five sermons on stewardship. And I've put it uh, in that place on purpose because too many of us think only of our stewardship regarding finances when that word comes up. A stewardship is something that is entrusted to someone for caregiving, for for good keeping. And we're looking at different dimensions that God has entrusted to us, different things, different relationships God has given to us from which he expects a return, for which he expects return a stewardship. Well, I want to direct your attention first to Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four. Familiar passage that uh, you know. Genesis four comes right after Genesis three. That's big theology right there. Genesis one and two, the creation. Genesis three, the fall of man. Genesis four, we meet the first children to the first parents on the planet. Genesis chapter four, follow along as I begin in verse 1. Now the man, that was Adam, had relations with his wife, Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the first fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother and it came about when they were in the field, the Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice Of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This dramatic narrative of the first two sons of the first two parents didn't go as any of us might have hoped coming out of Genesis 1 and 2. Sin has been introduced into the world by Adam's disobedience. We're now told, not told, rather, how long it was between that sin and where we are here in chapter 4, but we do have some clues. How long has it been since the expulsion from the garden? We know it's been long enough for Adam and Eve to raise two sons to at least the age where they could be gainfully employed. They could have a skill. They could have a job. They were, they were young adults, if not adults. What's at stake here, though, I want to drill down on so many implications that we can't explore this morning, but it's verse 9. First, notice that the Lord asks Cain a question for which he expects an answer. Where is Abel? And then he just adds this wonderful, omniscient, penetrating insight. Abel, your brother. He could have said, where's your brother? He could have said, where is Abel? God said, where is Abel, your brother? He he identifies who he is, that there's a relationship, that he has a name, that he's a real person. Also, notice how Cain interprets God's question. He says, Am I my brother's keeper? After lying to the Lord and saying, I don't know, which we know he knew exactly where where his brother was. He says, "Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for the well-being of my brother? Aren't I solo? Aren't, aren't I a person who has a relationship with you alone? Why are you asking me about him?" He interpreted God's question as, "Are you taking care of your brother? Are you your brother's keeper?" And he answered, "I am am I Really, my brother's keeper? Now, if you read this narrative, it's not said explicitly, but I think it's very clear the Lord's answer to this question. Yes, you actually are your brother's keeper, especially when it turns out that you have been your brother's murderer. You are responsible for the relationships in which you find yourself. That's the overriding principle here, especially here with his brother and his family, You are your brother's keeper. What we're gonna look at this morning is the stewardship of relationships. And really, you can answer it by saying that we are our brother's keeper. This is a tough notion for those of us who live in in a rugged, uh, you know, uh, rustic, uh, even rural America where it's, it's uh, we're individuals and we, we fight for what we want and we, we uh, make our gains and we, we invest and our money's ours and we have freedom and individuality. All of those are blessings of the society we live in. But are you still your brother's keeper? And if so, who's your brother? Who are you responsible for? Ask another way. Are the relationships that God has put around you entrustments for your stewardship? And the simple answer is, in some dimension, as we'll see, yes, they are. Relationships are a stewardship that we have before God. He expects us to be able to do what Cain tried to avoid, which was be our brother's keeper. But what does this mean for us as believers what does this mean for those of us who want to, to be faithful stewards before God? We can look at this a few ways. Now, I was, I was really conflicted in breaking down the stewardship of our relationships. My first outline had two points. Our, our stewardship of unbelieving relationships, but our relationship with unbelievers, and our relationship with believers. And you can certainly look at the scriptures and, and dial that in with those two categories. But I think you can break it down even a little bit further. There are are more categories that I want to discover with you. Let's look then at four relational categories for responsible stewardship. You could have six, you could have nine, you could have ten, you could have two. But for purposes of our study, we're going to look at these four relational categories for responsible stewardship. In other words, these are relationships for which we are responsible to the Lord to give an account. First should be obvious, our family. We haven't given families. First thing to consider about when you think about a family is God's providence. God's providence. Nobody gets to choose his or her family. Now, I understand there's adoption. I understand that that there's a, there, there are, are deaths and cousins can live with cousins. I understand there's exceptions, but... Understand from the fundamental uh, basic reality of, of the, the reproductive science, you don't get to choose your parents. I did not choose Larry and Martha Holland to be my parents. Because of that, I didn't get to choose me. My, my dad was 5'8", was I'm 5'7". Uh, I, I, I didn't get to choose my, my, my genetics. I didn't get that choice. God providentially arranged my family. He arranged yours. Even those who've been adopted, he still arranged that God is providentially in charge of putting us in our family. That's really important for children to understand, really important for parents to understand. God has never made a mistake in anything, and no mistakes were ever made in the putting together of families. Now let's start in Ephesians chapter 6 by looking at this most basic family stewardship, parents and children. There's more said in the family about parents and children than any other relationship. Yes, I know there's extended family, but frankly, there's not a lot said about extended family in the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6, you know it very well, verses 1 to 4. It talks to children, Paul talks to children, then Paul talks to parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and nurture or instruction of the Lord. Now, this is not the time for us to go off on a, a, a tangent on the, the mandate for children to obey parents. It's pretty obvious. There's not any footnotes given here. It's straightforward. It's straightforward. It's also not the, the moment for a parenting series where we look at each other and talk about how we're to, to parent. With that as a given, I wanna I want back up for a second and look at this as a stewardship. God has given, let, let me talk to those of you who, are, who have parents, um, maybe in your home, you still live in their home, or even parents that are elsewhere, even parents that, parents of adults, God has given us a stewardship. Notice it says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We're told elsewhere in verse 2 and other places to honor them. The main issue here is honoring, It's, it's the stewardship of giving proper due and proper respect. God is very serious about how children respond to parents. Very serious. It's the first and it's the most lasting relationship. So those of you who are children, let me talk to those of you who are children in the home. I've got a lot of them I can see right now. God has given you, this is interesting, he's given you the stewardship of your parents. And he expects you to give an account for him by how you have handled your parents. Dealt with them, honored them, obeyed them, interacted with them, respected them, loved them, This is also something that parents need to teach children. Honoring doesn't come naturally. Honoring comes through what we find out here is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's something that we have to always instruct about, always care for. Honoring and submission and obeying parents does not come passively. It's something we have to actively shepherd but children have this stewardship. Usually we don't think of it like that. But kids, children, juniors, senior hires, let me encourage you. God is expecting your relationship with your parents to be something that you present to him as an investment with a return. Something that has fruit. Something that bears fruit. You're, you're purposefully tending that relationship. Parents, here it says fathers, but you can add mothers too, have a a stewardship for our children. Probably our greatest stewardship is our children. What are we doing with them and about them and in response to them? Um, we are living in a day that's so busy that parenting is becoming more and more challenging just from the standpoint of spending enough time around kids to have an investment. I admit this, I know this, I I minister, I travel, I I work, I drive, they go to school. It's difficult. But look down in verse 4. Paul says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, our parenting as Christians is to be Lord-centric, God-centered, all about the Savior. You read in the context there, the Lord is Jesus. So how do we do that? Parents, our greatest stewardship with our children is to introduce and keep in front of our children our relationship with Christ. You say, "Well, okay, that's, that's good, but how does that happen? Collateral to that, and probably even above that, is our relationship with our spouse. If you back up in the text, what has Paul just talked about in Ephesians 5? He's talked about husbands and wives. And his point is husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. There's an order in marriage that's a stewardship in the family that we have to give an account for. There's an old myth that when you stand, men especially, there's this myth that when you stand before God, you will stand there accountable for only yourself. I don't think so because Ephesians 5 says that we're called to present our brides to God more wholly because they were married to us. We are our family's keepers fathers. Marriage is at heart here. It's a stewardship. And here's what happens. This is, a, this is not from books I've read. This is because I have a wife and children. When you have a a, a, a godly marriage which I think I do. When you have Sweet kids, which I sometimes do. Um, I think it's easy to get lazy. Just not to give the effort toward it that ought to be extended to our wives and children. It's just easy to get lazy. Well, we come to church, we drop them off at youth group, make Adam, get them to be godly, and we'll come pick them up later. We get lazy. A good marriage as a stewardship before God Solid parenting as a good stewardship before God, honoring our parents as a good stewardship before God requires deliberate intentionality and effort. And if we're lazy, we're gonna find ourselves subtly slipping into a place that one day we're gonna wake up and say, how did I get here? It's a stewardship. So the question about all this, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, You can go aunts, uncles, cousins. That's collaterally down the road. Is this. Are we being deliberate and responsible as stewards? Because God gave those relationships to us. He's given us those relationships. Are we investing in them for a spiritual return? We'll come back to that. Secondly, it's, I call it work and school. This is, um, this is what we do with our day, basically. If you're in work, you're going to work. If you're at school, if you're, if you're a, a stay-at-home mom, what, what, what happens during that time? The Bible has a lot to say, by the way, about a believer's work ethic. And that's a, that's a sermon, a topic for another sermon. But in Ephesians, just keep going, down in chapter five, excuse me, verse five of chapter six, Paul addresses this. He says, slaves, you can translate that or interpret that, employees. Be obedient to those who are your masters, your bosses, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, here it is, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. That's impressive. The stewardship that we have at work, at school, with our teachers, is to render what we've been assigned, what our responsibilities are, as service to God, not just these people who are over us. Verse eight, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, if you're a boss, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. This is interesting. He says, you have a stewardship as someone in subordination to someone. You have a stewardship as someone with those who are subordinate to you. And that goes for everything we do, basically nine to five. A teacher, a coach, a boss, an employee. Those are stewardships. And God expects us to treat those with great care and with spiritual analogy. In other words, we're, we're, we're dealing with, with the people that we're around as we would deal with the Lord. Not as I service." We're actually doing this before the eyes of the one who sees anyway. Again, God's providence comes into play here, doesn't it? With rare exception, unless maybe you're a boss, you don't get to pick your, your um, fellow employees or the people down the cubicle from you or, or the p- people in your class or the people in your university. That, that's not your choice God has, get this, God has played chess and arranged the board so that where you sit in class, where you stand at work, everything we do is prearranged by God for us to be in the middle of and to steward. He expects that stewardship. He's placed you where you are with the people you are with for gospel reasons. All those relationships at work and at school are Stewardships, And again, we can study this in, with great intensity on, on how a boss should be, how an employee should be. What I want you to do is just back up and say, hang on, God has arranged this and he expects me to, to deal with these relationships in a way that's spiritually governed. A third, which is really hard to categorize, social. And by that I mean two things, friends and acquaintances. This may be people at work, it may not be people at work. It's a catch-all category for any and every relationship, but especially those not in your family or at work or at school or, or at church. It could be your neighbors. It could be your, the families of the friends, the families of the kids on your sports teams. It, it could be the barista you see at Starbucks over and over. It could be your UPS man or your postman. These are acquaintances and these are friends, the Bible's not silent about friendship. We don't have the time. It would take us weeks to study the Bible on friendship. Just a couple of verses though. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 20. A man of too many friends will come to ruin. But I love this. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon penned this reality that there are friends that some of us have in our lives, and there are very few. There are friends that we we maintain, friends that God gives us that really function almost closer than our physical brothers or sisters. Have you had a friend like that in your life? I've had a few, and to this day, I treasure those as my most intimate possessions. What a gift a good friend is. What a gift a good friend is. Faithful, Paul said, uh, uh, Solomon says later, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, a friend will wound you for your good. A friend will confront you, correct you, get in your kitchen, get in your life, encourage you. These are, these are stewardship friendships that actually advance you closer to Christ because of these relationships. The essence of biblical responsibility in relationships is really selflessness and service. That's the essence of acquaintances. That's the essence of friendships. We we serve them. We're selfless. Opposite, we're not selfish. You know Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What a powerful passage. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Comprehensive. But with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, thinking of yourself in a demeaning sense, lowliness of mind, humility, regard one another as, get this, more important than who? Yourselves. Then he says this, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Then he says, have this attitude in you, which also existed in who? Who? In Jesus Christ. Your acquaintances, your friends, certainly your family, all are to be governed in your stewardship by selflessness, by service. You're looking out for their interests more than yours. Uh, come on, all of us, our, our, our knee jerk flex reaction in our souls is to look out for ourselves, isn't it? It's to get more, gain more, experience more, to be about ourselves. Paul says, no, no. We're pouring out ourselves on behalf of others. If there's anything that can be volunteered for and I could serve someone, I want to be the first person, is the, the nature of this verse to be, be about that. Because if we were in the opposite position, we would need to service ourselves, right? I am, I have to admit this. I know that boasting and bragging is not a virtue, but I found myself doing it yesterday. We were at, down at the Iron Man's Men's Conference. I was talking to another pastor about our church and he says, what, what's the nature, what's the personality of your church? And with just the first thing that came to my mind is service. It's hard for me to imagine a situation in our church that we couldn't rally servants to help. I'm So encouraged, but as Paul told the Thessalonians, excel, still, more, we're not there yet. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, there's, a, there's something that goes along with this service with our friends and our acquaintances. And again, there's a lot of overlap here. This goes with our family and our church members as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, excuse me, chapter two, verses 14 and 17, Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us The sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Hear the comprehensive nature of that? God is manifesting the sweet aroma of him in every place. Every place. Sounds like every place to me, doesn't it, you? Every person, every relationship. We are to represent the aroma of Christ. What does that mean? Does, do, do we know what Jesus' cologne was? That's not what it's talking about. The aroma of Christ is the presence of Christ. My, uh, my mom, who's with the Lord now, so I can talk about her. Um, uh, I'm not sure what she knows or not about this situation, but she, had, she wore this, um, this perfume. And uh, I don't know the name of it. Uh, I've smelled it a few times uh, uh, over the years, and it always reminds me of her, but when she walked in the room, and if I didn't know her, I could smell that and know it was my mom. If she was in the room and left the room, and I walked in, I could smell that and know that she had been there. In other words, this, this is what Paul picks up with, this aroma. Aroma has a powerful, powerful um, influence on sensation. Have you ever walked into a, a bakery <laughs> I feel so sorry for those who work in bakeries because they always tell me, you know, after a while, you just get used to it and you don't smell it anymore. I, I feel so sorry for those people because it is a glorious smell, this yeasty, British aroma. We're not that too far from lunch, so. Aroma catches your attention. And isn't it amazing how aroma can tweak your thinking I mean, you walk into a bakery, it has this, this, this effect on you. I, I smell this perfume that my mother used to wear. I, it still has an effect on me. That's what he's saying here. We are to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many peddling the word of God but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak Christ in the sight of God. In other words, with acquaintances, with friends, at work, at play, socially, anywhere, we are to put off the aroma, the presence, the the knowledge of God who's with us. So our stewardship with others You see what's going on here? It's not only to care for them, but it's also to represent God to them. There's there's a dual stewardship that's going here. We are stewarding, in a sense, we're stewarding God. We have a stewardship of the aroma of him in us that we're displaying, I love this phrase, in every place. So socially, acquaintances, socially with... with, um, Friends, we are to have the aroma of Christ. Our stewardship is to present Christ and our understanding of him to them and to care for them selflessly. Number four, church. Now this is number last, number last, <laughs> number four. This is last on purpose. Let me, let me uh, say something that might be a surprise to some of you. The Bible says more about yours and my responsibility to the body of Christ than it does any other relationship, including our husbands, including our wives, including our children, including our families. There is more said about the church and the family that we have and the stewardship we have as church members in the body of Christ than there is anything else. And I say that because I have known people over the years who would uh, succumb to what I could only call family In other words, that they, they would worship the family even more than they would God. That the family, they say, is the primary relationship even above the church. I had a gentleman tell me in my office one time, um, he was explaining to me why his, his children weren't, weren't involved in our, our youth ministry. This was uh, several years ago when I was at Grace Church. And... Um, he basically said, you need to understand, I don't, I don't want the youth pastor or the youth leaders or anybody uh, uh, having an impact or discipleship on my son because that's my responsibility. And I take my responsibility seriously. Wow. I said, well, you do know there's two verses about that in the New Testament and hundreds about the church. Does that mean we, we lower our bar with family? Not at all. It means that we do this together. Just read, just read Acts chapter two. It says they shared all things in common. they uh they shared possessions, they they shared parenting insights that was no one thought they had a corner, and we have to guard ourselves from thinking that that church is secondary. Church is the context. For all of our relationships, it spins off our responsible stewardship and faithfulness into these other relationships. We've talked about this a lot before. We are all to be an ecclesiologist. You say, what is that? Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. An ecclesiologist is someone who is an expert in the theology of the church. All of us are to be experts in what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, It's imperative to the health of our church that we each understand our stewardship with respect to the body of Christ here at Mission Road. So many passages address this. We're gonna have a full-blown study of this in Romans chapter 12, 13, and 14. But just very quickly, Romans chapter 12, I just wanna sneak peek. It'll be a few months before we're there. Romans 12, verse 6 Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Verse 7 captures what we talked about with our spiritual gifts. There are only two categories uh, teaching gifts and serving gifts. He's saying be faithful there. Verse eight, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with, uh, with, obviously with his mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That sounds like Philippians 2. Not lacking behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You hear what he's saying? He's, saying, he's not saying demean your family, but he's saying all that you have, that familial love, that, that intrinsic affection you have for your family, he transfers that here in verse 10. He says, be devoted to the body of Christ. Be devoted to one another like that. This is a family. It's supposed to function as a family. But as a stewardship... I want you to consider with me a, a verse that really is the, the kind of the climax to this whole stewardship of relationships. Turn to Galatians chapter six. This is why we have our care groups. This is why we uh, have a beautiful foyer and atrium that we can we can hang out and, and, and talk with people too. This is, this, is, this is why, and I feel sorry for those of you who, are, who have Sunday night rotation to turn out the lights in the church. This is why it's a difficult task because this is happening in so many ways. Brethren, chapter six, verse one. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of Gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, we're helping each other in in our pursuit for holiness, in our being tripped up by sin. We're actually coming to each other. We're restoring one another. There is no confrontation. There should be no confrontation coming from the heart of a Christian that doesn't have restoration and repentance as its goal. No vindication. No uh, uh, paying back. No vengeance. And in that context, look at verse two. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That wraps up stewardship in one simple statement. You will fulfill the law of Christ. That's our responsibility before him. We will be good stewards of his commandment if we bear one another's burdens. Now, a few footnotes about that. Bearing one another's burdens is hard. It's not fun. You will inevitably get to a point where you're saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm not sufficient for this. Someone will share a need with you. You don't have the resources to meet that need. It's very interesting here that it doesn't say, look back at the text, solve one another's problems and fulfill the law of Christ. Does it? It says, bear the burden. I told our men this one time, and it, it was so brutally instructive for me. Kim and I had been married uh, just about three or four months, and I, uh, uh, we were driving, and we were in Detroit at the time, and uh, I was telling her about this, these guys I was discipling, and, and um, it, was, it was wonderful you know, to meet with these guys on Tuesday morning, and... Everything seemed great, and she was saying, Well, I'd, we're, I'd like to be discipled too. It's like, Wow, did I miss that? And then we entered into a discussion about an issue she was having at work. I solved problems for a living, and I tried to solve her problem. So she was telling me what was going on, and I said, okay, and I went boom, boom, boom. I had three incredible bullet points. solve the problem in seven seconds. And I remember her grabbing my hand. She has a way of grabbing my hand that's not necessarily affectionate. It's corrective, if I can say it like that. And she said, honey, I don't care if you can solve my problem. Sometimes I just want you to know, I want to know that you know that I have them. In other words, she was saying, will you bear this burden with me? We should do that with each other. You know, I think though that one reason that we don't do that easily in the church is we're afraid because we think, well, if I try to bear this burden, I gotta solve this problem. If you can, that's great. Read Job. The first few days, those guys couldn't solve Job's problem. They just sat in silence and cared that he had the problem. Probably their wisest moment. This presupposes that we're communicating and sharing one another's burden, sharing our burdens with each other. Christianity was never intended by God to be individual, lived out in isolation, lived alone. It's the ultimate mandate to bear one another's burdens. That's our stewardship. In every relationship, we should be thinking about moving them closer to Christ. All four of these categories moving them closer to Christ in salvation or closer to Christ in maturity. It's very simple but were the aroma of Christ in influencing that trajectory. So let me ask you some questions. Do you, the people in your spheres of relationships, have the privilege of relating to you? I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but are they, are they privileged to call you a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate? Do they have the privilege of knowing and being known by you? Now, before you get too, too arrogant about that, Let me ask you some questions. Do they have the honor and privilege of being brought to heaven's throne by by you in prayer? Husbands, does your wife have the amazing privilege that her name is brought before the throne of grace every day by her faithful, loving husband? Same with wives, your friends. The friends who don't know the Savior, are they privileged? Are they, are they in a good position because God gave them you to pray for? You can go to the throne of grace and bring them regularly. Do they have that privilege? Do they have that honor? Have they heard from you about a great Savior, the hope of heaven, the forgiveness of sin, an abundant life to be lived because of Jesus? Have they, have they experienced that stewardship rolling off your lips? Do they have a servant because they know you? Let me tell you something though. Those who serve, be careful because people who are servants sometimes are treated like servants. And I think that's the design of God to keep us humble. Are their lives bettered because God has given you as a steward of the relationship they have with them? What a a powerful thought that is. Are they bettered because they know me? What kind of family member are you? Brother, sister, husband, wife, father, mother, child. What kind of friend are you? These are stewardships. God has entrusted these relationships to us. He's given us these connections. And he expects us to be faithful in executing our friendship and relationships to them. I was thinking just recently, uh, Bob and I were at a funeral last week together, really powerful funeral. And uh, you, you, I, I hope I wasn't being selfish or conceited or anything, but when, when someone's giving tribute to somebody, uh, don't you all, all often think, I wonder what will be said at my funeral? Uh, I think it's an okay thing to think about. What will be my legacy is another way of asking that. What will be my impact? All that I heard in that funeral, the impact was uniquely related to the stewardship of this man's relationships. It's remarkable. You say, well, I'm not much of anybody. I I can't do much. I heard a story years ago. It stuck with me. And if you've heard it, join with me and let it stick with you some more story was told of a man taking a walk on a beach. It was low tide, and there were thousands and thousands of starfish that had been washed up. They were left on the sand by the tide that had obviously come back, and in the morning, the low tide in the morning, they were, they were obviously going to die in the, in, the, in the heat of the, the sunlight, be dried out and die. Well, there was a the little boy that the man saw running around on the beach as frantically as he could, picking up as many starfish as possible and throwing them back in the water, trying to save them. Well, the older man thought he was gonna teach the boy a good lesson in common sense. So he says, listen, I've been watching you, son, and I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your heart, and I know you mean well, but do you realize how many beaches there are around the here and even the world? How many starfish are dying on every beach every day? Surely such an industrious, kind-hearted kid like yourself could find something better to do with your time. Do you really think that what you're doing is going to make a difference? The boy looked up at the man and he looked at the starfish that he was holding in his hand. And as he tossed it back into the ocean, he said, it made a difference to that one. I love that story. You can make a difference in every conversation and in every relationship. And a difference can change a person's life because God has given us those relationships as stewards. Let's pray together. Our prayer will be open in a moment. If you want to know what it means to give your life to Christ, to have these things done for a great Savior, to have your sins forgiven, please come and let us talk to you. Father, we are um, humbled by these texts. It's overwhelming, the stewardship you have. Please cause us to be aware in every moment with every person that we have a precious opportunity, a unique stewardship. Make us all difference makers in the moment to redeem the time to focus our attention on how we can accelerate, how we can amplify the aroma of your sweet son in our influence. Make us faithful, Lord, especially in our body here. Make us faithful in our families, faithful with our friends. Give us an awareness that this is all laid out by you with great expectations of service and stewardship. Even before we leave the building today, Lord, give us deliberate intentionality in how we can advance our love and worship of your son by conversations and by comments. Thank you for this church. Thank you that this is such a sweet church that shepherds its stewardships and relationships so well. Help us to excel still more. In Jesus' name. Amen.